0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very intrigued today to be interviewing Dr. Sophia Stock about her book titled The Opening Statement of the Prosecution in International Criminal Trials, A Solemn Tale of Horror, published in 2021 by Rootledge. Um, the book addresses the importance of of the prosecution's opening statement before an international criminal tribunal. And this is really interesting because opening statements are not really legally worth anything. They're not officially part of what counts in a legal sense, but they're also kind of the first big statement when an international criminal trial starts. And international criminal trials, by definition, are events and dealing with circumstances that are seen as kind of too big and too bad to be dealt with in any other kind of court. So opening statements live in this really interesting place of like, not really having legal weight, but still having a huge impact because of who they're in front of and when they are given. Um, And so I learned loads from this book, personally, um, about a thing that Maybe many of us have kind of come across an opening statement. Yeah, of course, there's an opening statement. It has to start somehow, right? But maybe never really thought about. So thankfully, Dr. Sylvia Stock has thought about it for us. And I'm thrilled to welcome her to the podcast so we can learn from her. Thank you. Um, So I'm wondering if we could start off, please, by asking you to kind of introduce yourself a bit, your academic background, um, and explain how you came to write this book. Well, thank you, first of all, for the lovely
1: invitation to talk about this book and uh, the, the, the wonderful introduction. Um, it's exactly that, huh? the opening statements. It sounds so familiar, but it's, uh, it's full of surprises, um, I discovered. Uh, so I'm Sophia Stoke, I work at the uh, Osser Institute in The Hague, part of the University of Amsterdam. Um, and there I now focus more on the visualization of international law. So I'm always attracted by these borderline, um, is it law, is it not law, but it matters to law, such as um, dramatic discourses in the opening statement or visualizations uh, of law uh, right now. And my academic bra- background, so I have a bit of a mixed background. I Once upon a time, I studied linguistics. Uh, I did conflict studies and human rights as a master's and then my PhD in international criminal law and that's also um, where I worked on opening statements so it started off as a project in um, uh, the theatrical or international criminal trials as theatrical performances and when I started working on that uh, the opening statements was one of the things that stood out and then in the end um, I wrote a whole dissertation and then a whole book about it
0: That makes a lot of sense to hear that you have linguistics somewhere in your background (laughs) um, to combine then with international law and bring this kind of different perspective into it. Um, So I'd love to kind of start off at the beginning, uh, both of opening statements and of course of the book. And you talk about how opening statements are both, quote, crucial and irrelevant, um, which is a great pairing. And kind of I mentioned that already in the introduction. So can you tell us kind of a bit more about sort of these two halves? Yes.
1: Well, well, like you said, it's this very interesting space um, in which the opening statement is both um, a momentous occasion, the beginning of a trial, the moment in which you set the stage, um, uh, and at the same time, it is also merely the introduction of, of the trial And it's also treated as such. So it is part of the proceedings, um, but it's not regarded as anything that uh, brings any arguments. It's just a summary um, of the arguments or introduction of the evidence, but not the real thing. Um, That said, uh, it's also hardly ever omitted, although it's um, usually not mandatory, but uh, it is really taken up as an occasion to, 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 to start um, and I think, especially in international contexts, um, where you see that legitimacy is an issue for all tribunals and courts uh, in an international sphere, um, that this moment where there's actually an audience, um, it's a it's a crucial moment for not only starting the case but also. Um, reaffirming, justifying the the relevance of the trial and the tribunal and maybe even ICL as an international criminal law as a whole. So you see all these things coming together in this um, explosive moment of of beginning, which uh, I think is really, yeah, it's really a, a, a wonderful tension that brings about a very unique storytelling moment. Um, And indeed, it's also a moment that's picked up by the media um, and trials, I mean, they take a long time, especially in international criminal law, law, it can take years and years, and nothing really is covered by the media, just a few maybe curious uh, academics who who work on these specific issues or or lawyers, but not so much the, the broader public. And the opening statement is one of these moments, I think, together with the closing statement and the judgment um, is one of these moments that actually reach a broad audience. So in that sense, it's also uh, important, yet irrelevant, because uh, technically speaking, it's not doing anything uh, for the trial,
0: but summarizing it. Yeah, the the media aspect becomes particularly interesting when you do think about, as you just said, the context of its years, Um, And kind of having this to kind of go back to or understand what's happening um, is really important. But you also talk about the importance of kind of setting the stage, as it were, not just from a media perspective from the public, but also serving kind of a, I guess, an institutional purpose, a sort of justification of why this is happening. Um, So I was wondering if you could sort of talk us through those mechanisms where the opening statement kind of is a way to justify and legitimize kind of what the court is then about to do
1: yeah and I, I think it's
0: a, a legitimizing a
1: self-legitimizing a uh, narrative that again addresses different audiences so it's 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 both the internal community of lawyers, um, the, the, the people present in the courtroom, as well as again <coughs> the bigger audience. Um, and what I uh, found striking in 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 the opening statements that I've studied that there is always an appeal to history, and. Um, Clearly, that's the history of the case. Uh, there is a lot of literature uh, on trials, as also um, writing historical records, etc. Um, but what I'm interested in is the history that uh, prosecutors tell about the, the trial and the tribunal itself. And um, then again, I'm coming to this point of of the legitimacy crisis of international criminal law. That's I think it's a permanent status. Um, but um, you see that every prosecutor um, at every tribunal or court um, takes this opportunity to say something about both the novelty of this very trial tribunal, this very case, um, as well as um, affirming that it's uh, a well-established tradition um, in which they're working and, and that this case has a, has a history. Um, and you see that these elements together, they provide um, a discourse that describes the trial as a, or the tribunal as a turning point in time from violence to a better future. And that means both explaining um, that it's a groundbreaking development, um, but also affirming its pre-existence. So the trial is um, described as some sort of logical outcome as uh, of history, as well as a break with the past. And you see this tension coming up in different times at different occasions. So at the International Military Tribunal, uh, where Justice Jackson did uh, this famous opening statement. You see, it's yeah, it, it feels very urgent um, to describe that this is not something that came out of nowhere and that there is a history. Um, but there's not an established history of international criminal law then. So he um, picks bits and pieces from the history of law um, and the international developments to say, okay, look, we're here doing something Um, that's not uh, entirely something that we just figured out. It has a rich tradition. At the same time, we're, we're really making groundbreaking steps also in this context because of the war um, and it was something that was also unprecedented. And you see this argument. And then if we go like many, many years later, for example, to the special court for Sierra Leone, you see how the prosecutors there um, also cite Jackson in their own uh, statement. So they bring this history really into the, the tribunal. And they do a similar thing. So they say, okay, what we what we do here now is... Um, we have to do this groundbreaking trial. So again, it's something groundbreaking um, to to deal with a, with a violent past and to bring a better future. And um, but we do this uh, standing on the shoulders of others. So it is a rich tradition. And and I think this dynamic is is really um, something that re- reoccurs all the time, um, e- even at the International Criminal Court, which which is supposed to be a permanent court. So maybe. Um, there's less need to to refer to history all the time.
0: If there's less need, though, then why do they keep doing it?
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> because I think the, the, the question of legitimacy it remains a pertinent one. And I think history in that sense and, and time and, and um, to show your embeddedness in, in this history and also the things that you bring um, and this narrative of progress, um, it's a thing to, it's a it's a it's a method to tackle this um these questions of legitimacy in, in, in such a mm-hmm. such a self-justifying narrative. That makes sense.
0: So we've been discussing <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> weird. Well we've been we've been discussing then opening statements kind of with the sort of assumption that it's all words, that it's someone's written something down and then they stand up and they say it out loud. Um, and obviously to a degree that is true. But something that I found really interesting was how big a deal uh, you show that it is in your book, the use of maps are, in opening statements. Um, I didn't even know that that was going to be a part of your book when I selected it. Um, it would have definitely made me choose it. I'm a massive map nerd. Um, so to find out that these things involve maps made it even more interesting But I was really interested in both how frequently maps are used, um, how many maps seem to be used, it's not just one, Um, and also that they're used to really tell a story. They're not just kind of like a picture on a screen. And you talk about this, um, that this is very intentional. And a lot of the time, some of the work that is trying to be done with this is kind of adjusting for the fact that there are a lot of different audiences, right? There are the judges who are actually there in the chamber who are probably not from the place where the conflict that's being discussed took place. But there's also people who were actively involved in the conflict on both sides of the trial who are there. And then there's the international audience of generally interested people. And there's the audience of people who are impacted, but might still be there. They're not necessarily directly enough impacted to be physically in the courtroom. So there's all of these different audiences. And you talk about how the opening statement can use maps to kind of address these differences but that sometimes the attempts to address it make it even more confused or show tensions um, so i'm wondering if you can kind of tell us about sort of what's the point of using maps like what are they trying to do um, and how does this sort of work and not work
1: Hmm. Yeah, so I studied maps specifically in the context of the International Criminal Court, um, although they're used elsewhere as well, but I, I cannot say anything um, <laughs> well studied about that. Um, but there you see that indeed. And there's always, especially at the International Criminal Court, this anxiety of being far removed from um, the situations over which they try to say something, um, so that that that's attention that is always there, and it's a bigger discussion, of course, on on local justice. Um, but but this anxiety is there at ICC specifically, um, and maps, of course, um, are this sort of um, they carry a sort of promise of. Um, facts about geography, uh, a sort of neutral device to show, okay, this is the place um, we're talking about. And I mean, yeah, I, in a way I think many of us are map nerds. So uh, I think that that is also very appealing. Um, But what struck me when I saw the maps, uh, when I was sitting in the public gallery and they showed a map and I was like, Hmm, at first I thought, oh yeah, map, That that's always good. And then I was like, oh, but I don't really understand what I'm seeing. I don't know where this is. I don't know what it exactly represents. Um, and then um, it was used in a way that... Um, on the map they projected arrows in two colors and the colors represented um, two parties of the conflict, the perpetrators and the victims. Um, And it was such a simplification uh, of the story and it got me thinking, so this map is part of the argument. And um, in in critical geography, that's also a really big thing, Uh, critical cartography as well. Um, And you have this sort of, um cartographic paradox, which I really like. So a map has to be simplified to work. Otherwise, why would you have a map if in all detail, um, we, we cannot put all the details on it. But that also means that a map is always a product of choices. Uh, so people make a map and select the elements that are on the map or not. Um, and then in the context of the court, uh, maps are used in the context of a certain story, and um, so again, the map is explained by someone in a very particular way. So maps are sp- specific techniques of making truth—a specific technique of knowledge production. Um, and when um, the maps—and I study them in the in the story about the local and the local in international criminal trials—that's that's not an absolute external reality. Um, and also the way in which the local is um, is made sense of um, is indeed appealing to to different audiences. And in words, it's a lot of times um, you can hear referring to okay, this trial is also for our local audiences. But these maps and the way in which they explain uh, are explained clearly targets a an audience that's not familiar with the, with the place. Um, and in the book, I describe how maps are used to order and imagine, uh, but also appropriate the local to make it in a place that fits with the narrative of the prosecution. Uh, prosecution, So it's a it's a simplification and, and it's, it's, it's making a binary story. Um, at the same time, At the same time, uh, what struck me is that that's not enough. So maps are in these stories always accompanied by more um, poetic stories and an appeal to imagination by, for example, landscape descriptions, Um, again, directed to an audience that's clearly not local. And this is also appropriated into the legal narrative and this contrast between the, the peaceful landscape and the violence also um, is doing something that is a bit problematic in the sense that it's it's also sort of estrangement and, and this orientalistic um, sort of descriptions of, of the exotic beauty, um, which is when you think about the broader discussion on, on for example, the ICC's um, African bias, it's, it's a really uh, tricky thing. And um the, the, the assumption that maps are just neutral um, representations of spaces and places is um yeah that, that that's untenable. You cannot say that, but it's it's interesting to have a, a deeper look at what what these maps then do in the story and how they support this binary narrative and how they also <coughs> support this legitimizing um uh, look, we know the local, uh, we may be far away, but we are very familiar with, um, with the place where, where, where this all happened.
0: And this is even more complicated in a way, in addition to the complexities of maps generally, um, and the kind of decisions they have to make and how you then translate that into explaining a war, Um, by the fact that again, as we've already mentioned, the opening statement is not legally part of the case. Really? So how does that kind of further complicate or what else should we sort of be critical about or think critically about in the use of maps, given this particular place that they're in? They're not presented in like the evidence section of the trial no no and that's that's indeed so
1: the opening statement gives a bit of leeway for a more story like story (laughs) and uh, it's also hardly ever questioned so what is said in the opening statement is not it's not that that the other party will interrupt to say but hey wait a minute what's going on with this map um and, but but in general, I think that that maps are used quite uncritically, and then in this context of the opening statements, of course, if if there's no discussion on what the map is representing, um, yeah, that that's something to be aware of. Uh, and what's what is interesting when I was sitting there looking at these maps also. Uh, at a at public, uh, sitting in a public gallery, then you hear a discussion in the audience on the maps. And I, I heard even someone saying next to me, um, um, where, did, where did this person go to school? So people disagreed with the maps. But that's not something, of course, that you see when you're just watching the opening
0: statement. Fascinating. Um, I think this is, I, I just love kind of how we're adding all these pieces in and going, Hang on a second, let's unpick this. Um, so another kind of aspect I want to unpick is how opening statements work in the broader sort of debate tension etc between institutions like the ICC specifically and victims right that's that's already quite a big tension um, and we sort of touched on already this anxiety about dealing with something that's very far away do you actually know enough to understand it etc Um But opening statements you discuss in the book are kind of part of that debate. They set expectations and do things around what the different sides sort of say they're going to do or promise. Can you tell us about the opening statement in this sense?
1: Yeah, so I think especially the ICC is always presented as a victim-centered court and um, victims are put forward as Almost the raison that, for the whole reason of existence of the ICC, also in light of a history of tribunals which have neglected maybe the voice of the victim, the ICC is promising to to sort of remedy that. And if you look at the opening statement, uh, there is a very interesting role assigned to victims in the the, the truth finding process. So victims are presented both as truth-tellers, so those who know what actually happened, um, as well as truth-seekers. Um, and I think even there, there's a quote somewhere in the book of a victim representative who literally says, um, the victims now look up to the court um, to, to find the truth or looking for answers about what happened. At the same time, they are the source of that. Um, And I find that that, uh, a very interesting tension and also um, a very interesting how uh, the truth is different things at the same time. Um, And also how not every truth can be processed in a court of law, so it seems. Um, So, for example, um, stories of the victims are sometimes more about um, the truth about the suffering so not so much the truth about what what happened, but the experiences of victims. Um, and uh, the opening statement allows some room for those experiences to come to the fore without immediately be being questioned in the way that you question facts, um, like did this really happen? Did you really suffer that much? You know, you are not going to ask that in an opening statement, but. But it's it's very uncomfortable um, because uh, more re- multiple reasons. But for example, the t- suffering is, is sometimes inexpressible, and in the court it has to be put into words, and that does not necessarily match. Um, what it what it feels like. So there's a lot of of literature uh, on that as well, and also the idea that um, sometimes it's said just to t- the act of telling about the suffering is already some form of acknowledgement of the suffering of the victims, and that's maybe even um, enough um but at the same time there is also the, the 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 icc presents itself and especially in the opening statement prosecutors exe- um present their task also to give clarification on the truth and to contextualize the truth of the victims um but the language of a trial is not well equipped to contextualize suffering um in in that sense it's a bit a bit um Um, courts seem unable to deal uh, deal with these kind of truths, uh, uh, with these truths about suffering. It's always mediated, always juridified. Um, And and there are these shifting roles between assigning a task to the court and to the victim um, in the truth-telling process. Uh, You see that shifting back and forth, um, and they both have a role, but in the end... It's it's all uh, mediated through the language of the prosecutor.
0: Thank you for explaining that. I think the kind of idea of seeking truth, but also being the source of information, that tension comes through really clearly. Um, And again, it's kind of something we sort of know, like as soon as you say, it's like, yeah, of course that makes sense. Then you're like, wait a second, that's going to cause some problems. Um, So I, I, I quite liked that you make a point of saying in the book, like, I'm investigating and exploring these tensions. I'm not then going to tell you exactly what you need to do in every single instance to fix them. Um, no, and I also don't think that you can easily fix that. Um, and
1: I think maybe the point of the book even is to say, okay, if this is the format that we choose, if we choose the format of a trial, this is what we're going to get. Um, we're going to get these tensions and we're going to get these 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 paradoxes and if you don't want that maybe we should (laughs) do something
0: else (laughs) yeah i think that's really really helpful um so switching then from kind of the analysis on the victim side sort of how victims interact with this and are seen by the court in these statements um you have a section of the book where you investigate how opening statements think about discuss describe perpetrators Um, which is quite often where a lot of the like really evocative language that, you know, becomes a media headline comes from. Um, This is where a lot of the sort of inhuman and evil and all of that sort of goes. Um, So I really appreciated that you do essentially a like statistical analysis of what words are used and kind of then discuss the impacts. So I was wondering if you could sort of tell us a little bit about how you did this analysis Um, Kind of what were you using and what were you looking for and how did you sort of what were the methods you used for this section? Yeah,
1: it's interesting that you say indeed that these are the the things that make the headlines and that's also what inspired me to have a bit more of a a broader set, a broader data set because I was indeed wondering, okay, is this indeed Do we hear this because it's so dramatic and so appealing in in a a sensationalistic way that that we hear that more than than the rest or is it really so frequently used? So I uh, studied about 17 statements um, in different tribunals, uh, the ICTY, the ICC, the ECCC, Cambodia and the Special Court for Sierra Leone. And I also selected um, different types of, of cases, so both high-profile cases, as well as more mid-level or even um, low-level cases, uh, to see if there there was a difference between um, between them as well. And and you see that, well, of course, in all these narratives, um, the defendant is an important character, the most important character, even 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 in victim centered um so to speak cases of course it's an international criminal trial so the, the the defendant is is the central figure um so so that's how I studied it and and I did it a bit like a coding it was a coding exercise but a bottom up one so i read all these statements and i started to to flex. So these are recurring terms and themes um, when they talk about uh, the perpetrators or the, 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 the defendants.
0: So well, then what were the terms that kept coming up? You split them into human and inhuman. What were kind of the top ones in each of those categories? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I, that, that was the first striking thing, of course. And then again, it's something that you're like, yeah, of course, I know that. But but if you take a closer look, you're like, oh, this is how, how, how it works and, and doesn't work. Because indeed, an, a defendant has to be human and inhuman at the same time. It has to be a human being um, that can stand trial in a court of law. Um, because it is indeed a human being, part of our... Um, our our community in a way and at the same time the, the violence and the, the scale of violence that we're talking about here there must be some inhuman inhuman elements to this person because otherwise it feels uh, maybe not right to 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 put this person in this international trial etc so human traits um I think um most importantly there is um um, intelligence so it's a smart person who manipulated uh, people um, but there and of course it's a smart person because there has to be a plan There was intent um, uh, this is I, f- I find it intriguing that at the same time people speak about mindless violence etc so there's again both a mind and a mindlessness uh, to, to to what is happening Lust for power is absolutely one of the top things that um, that we see everywhere. Um, and that includes uh, terms like vanity, sadism, um, also aggressiveness you see quite often. Um, and that is described not not as incidental behavior, but f- often there's sort of a structural a picture of that that it's a structural habit of these people to be to be violent. Um, and on the inhuman side, there's, of course, a lot of um, comparison with animal behavior, not not at, as much as maybe uh, we, we, we would, would, would think when we just read the headlines, um, but beastly behavior um, and, and also the other way around that victims were treated like animals. So, um uh, Interestingly enough, the, the perpetrator is the animal and the victims were treated as animals at the same time. Um, so those things I think you see uh, quite frequently. The word evil itself, I don't think that that is um, very often used. Um, it's more in, in, by way of comparison between the good and the bad, for example, where again, victims play, play an important role uh, to make that contrast.
0: So this, I mean, again, as with literally every piece that we're discussing, there's tensions and it sort of seems like it's doing, it's doing one thing and then you look at it and you're like, wait a second, that's kind of creating some problems or like trying to do two things at the same time that are sort of contradictory. Um, and I thought this one was really interesting because as you said, like there's such a clear legal need for the defendant to be human and like mentally capable of standing trial on the other hand, there also has to be in some ways kind of for legitimacy purposes, an argument made that like this crime is somehow worse than other crimes. And that's why we're here, um, which is a really interesting tension. But then kind of I want to sort of go to the, the, the other team here that we've mentioned a little bit, um, the defense teams. So we've already talked about the opening statement is not legally part of the case. So they can't really object or interact in the way that they can later on. On the other hand, like that's just allowing the prosecution to kind of, sort of say whatever they want and really set the stage. We've talked about with maps. We've talked about with discussing victims. We've talked about with how perpetrators are described. Um, so, how do defense teams kind of respond to sitting there and listening to these statements?
1: Yeah, that's a good question because also when when you're studying the depictions of the of the defendants. Um, <clears throat> It, it's really more than with the victims or the maps of order or the history. Um, you get really curious, okay, but the defense cannot be silent on these uh, characterizations and they are not silent. Um, and their responses are also um, really, really interesting and really um, beautiful even sometimes. So um, yes, I, I do think that a lot of defense teams flag... Um, the the practice of dehumanization that is going on, um, and also flag that this is sensationalistic that, that the whole the uh, depiction of the perpetrator is just for the for the stage, it's 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 sensationalism. Um, I like one uh, defendant or defense team a member at the ECCC who said, well, this opening statement sounded like a novel written by Alexandre Dumas he was not entirely wrong i don't think <laughs> but but i i yeah this is a beautiful way of countering uh, this or at least of flagging look uh, it's well said it's uh, it, it's a beautiful language but we're talking about the human being here and that's also then immediately the, the type of response they give uh, so the em- emphasizing that the client their client is human and emphasizing um, the humanity of of this person. And also not denying sometimes even that there is evil and there there are evil perpetrators, but it's not their client. And then they bring forward um, arguments like, um, my client is just a scapegoat. Uh, You need to have other guys. uh, I mean, that happened, for example, in the Tadic case before the icty uh, or arguments like my um client is a good christian and he loves his community and giving examples of that um so that that is not um that that's not the defense of my client did not commit these acts but it's really um describing the personality um of of the client and so I thought that that was really um, intriguing how that's done. And also, when you see, for example, um, um, when um, defendants actually plead guilty, uh, they, they oftentimes um, talk about their own humanity and about their human regret, etc. So, so, really showing the, the humanness. Uh, not the humaneness, but the humanness
0: of the defendant is central in these in these defences. Interesting. That kind of makes it even more, sort of that tension between the human and the inhuman even more intriguing in some ways. Um, so I wanted to kind of ask about some of the implications of your work, not in terms of like what courts should and shouldn't do. We sort of already discussed the challenges with that sort of thing. Um, but kind of those of us interested in international law, international courts, particularly those, I'm guessing a number of our listeners are, um, people who study international law or international courts. Um, and this is a really interesting book, as I said at the beginning, because it is obviously really heavily focused on international law and international courts, but a piece of them that's not technically part of law that we don't necessarily teach about or learn about and when we study law. Um, And so kind of what should we as scholars, as those engaged in international criminal law, understand about opening statements and these sort of pieces on the edges of law in a way or on the edges of cases? What should we sort of take forward with us?
1: Well, I think that in these ambiguous spaces, um, you can really start to see the more fundamental tensions that are in in the very foundations of international criminal law. So I think the things that I flag happen in the that happened in the opening statement and the paradoxes that we come across are um, are not unique to the opening statement, but actually they display um, um, a lot about. What we think international criminal law is, what we want it to be, um, and also how some of the things that are going on in these um, international criminal law pro- uh, projects are just fundamentally clashing. Um, and that being victim centered and giving a voice to victims, but not being able to actually stage that voice in your court is not a problem of the opening statement, but signals, of course, m- something much more. Uh, fundamental about the incapability of trials to express suffering. Um, uh, same goes for for the perpetrators. This is not; it can never be a format to understand really what violence is about. That's also not the purpose of a trial. But I think it's good to realize that. And and I think what it also brings us is um, a perspective on law as as um or lawyers as storytellers and uh, an appreciation of that i think it's it's um not something that storytelling is not equaling something that it's not true or what something like that but really that law is is a story uh, telling field um but also that we should not take all these stories for granted and that stories also have a purpose um, and that the stories in the court of law simplify things. Um, and what I like to do with this book, and in general, is to bring a bit of the complexities back um, and to, to really peel down the way in which a chaotic, chaotic reality is sanitized through language um, and, and see what did we lose in that journey? What did we lose in the journey? From what happened and we and not understanding to suddenly sort of um, pretending that we do understand and that we can all put this in this uh, format that we call international criminal trials. Um, so I think. Yeah, that, that, that is what drives me. And I think that can also help you. Um, I'm, I'm indeed not saying you should do it better or differently, um, but to realize what is happening when you tell such a story and also what are the, the foundations of these
0: paradoxes. I think it's always interesting to have a deeper look at that. Yes, I certainly found it very interesting. Um, adding complexity, I think, is a good... Uh, descriptor of what you've done, um, but very clearly so that we understand what the paradoxes are, um, which is often difficult to do. Um, (laughs) So so I I wanted to ask about kind of a bit more about the process of the book. Um, Obviously, you cover a number of different cases, uh, different parts of the book go into detail about different cases. Um, You've already talked about the perpetrators, how you looked at 17 different opening statements. Um, So obviously, that was a long process to go through all of it. Um, (laughs) I was wondering if there was anything, whether that was, you know, as you said, sitting in the public gallery or a document you came across or something, um, kind of let us behind the scenes a little bit into your process. Was there a moment or an item or something you came across that kind of surprised you? Mm. Well, the whole project is
1: driven by uh, curiosity and surprise. Uh, I think also for me coming into this uh, field, not being... A lawyer um, made a difference. Um, the first opening statement I saw was in a documentary, War Don" on the special court of Sierra Leone. And there the prosecutor, David Crane, made this very dramatic opening statement. And I think that is a familiar one for a for lot of international criminal lawyers. And I was like, oh, wow, this is intense and our are all of these statements <laughs> like that? Um, and then it turned out that was not the case and this was particularly dramatic. Um, and also d- it got different responses. So in the legal community, it was really like, oh, you're n- this is not how you do it. It's, uh, it's, this is not what an opening statement should be. And and there were other voices saying, "Yeah, but this, this really fits with the, the oral tradition in Sierra Leone. So diff- different thoughts on that, um, but <coughs> indeed it started me thinking like, oh, uh, how does this work? And then I think all of the text, the opening statements, if you if you want to know something about what is what the case is about, both like in a nutshell, what the case itself is about, but also what the tribunal is about. I think they're beautiful texts to read. Um, uh, Striking features are also, for example, the amount of mango trees in ICC statements, Um, (laughs) which sounds, uh, yeah, beautiful, but then also it gets you thinking about how, 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 again, in this in the back of my mind was okay you have this african bias discussion and then suddenly there are all these mango trees so what is that doing and i think there's a lot in language and the way we phrase something and it says a lot about our own background and baggage and and, and, and the power of imagination that is really uh, really striking and and what is also nice about the opening statements is that they are often recorded, so I had had a chance to actually see a lot of them. I went to a couple of them in the in the ICC, and like you said, then that's that's a completely different experience when you're surrounded by an audience, uh, which is always also a mixed audience of people like me, but also um, people who support one of the sites in the. In, uh, in in the courtroom, um, a lot of interns who are sitting there aspiring to be a, a lawyer. Um, it it's it is a theater in 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 many many ways. Uh, so yeah, um,
0: everything surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a good insight into the process. Um, and obviously, this book was a lot of work and over a lot of time. Um, but it is now done. It is now officially out. People can read it. So, what are you working on now or next? So, my current focus is, uh, like I said in the beginning, um,
1: I moved a bit more to um, the visualization of international law, um, and that that I think started a bit with um, with a chapter in this book on maps and the landscape descriptions, and also when I noted how these all of these visual. Presentations uh, were were becoming part of the of the procedures. Um, so the role of photos and videos in the courtroom, but more and more also, and that that still has to do with this interest in how international law, um, more generally, so not only international criminal law, but how it is it is it is explained to the audience and also to the different types of audiences and um the the, the increasing use uh, of visual means by international court so the international criminal court they have a youtube channel they are very active on twitter and instagram Um that that's for a court of law i, I don't know how it's how it is elsewhere but in the netherlands for example that's not um, really a common practice Um, and also the type of content that they present on that um, visual content again is telling very uh, specific stories about um, the role of international law in the world and how we should understand the world and how we understand conflict Um, and i think that that in that sense the themes i'm working with are still very similar but now looking more at the visual um aspects rather than the 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 texts but
0: it's 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 still language in a way Fascinating. Well, that sounds like a really interesting project. Hopefully, if that becomes a book, you can come back and tell us all about it. (laughs) I'd love to. (laughs) Yes, of course. Uh, Great. Well, while you are off doing that and scrolling through the ICC's Instagram channel, um, (laughs) yeah, that's my job. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Listeners can read your current book, which we've been discussing. Uh, Reminder: It's titled "The Opening Statement of the Prosecution in International Criminal Trials: A Solemn Tale of Horror," published by Routledge in twenty twenty one. Dr. Sophia Stock, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you.